We've got two scripture readings this afternoon, one from the Old Testament, from the prophecy of Isaiah, and one from the New Testament, from the the book of Acts. We'll read from Isaiah 44 first, and then move on to to Acts chapter 3 and 4. Isaiah chapter 44, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will Pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says The Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth, they shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry. And his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. They know not 
nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things. Who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So far our reading from Isaiah. Now our second reading from God's word is from the the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3 verse 1 all the way to chapter 4 verse 12. Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones were made strong. And and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. 
and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive unto the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by, mean, by, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him... This man is standing before you well. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So far, our reading from God's word. Our reading from our confessions this afternoon comes from Lord's Day 11. Lord's Day 11. If you're looking in your, in your Trinity Psalter hymnals, that's on page 876 in the back. Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior. Because he saves us from our sins, and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Do those who look for their salvation and security in saints, in themselves, or elsewhere, really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No. Although they boast of being his, by their actions, they deny the only Savior, Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept the Savior, having Him all they need for their salvation. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Everyone's looking for salvation. Everyone's looking for salvation. Everyone, even the most secular person in the world, recognizes that there are problems in the world. There are deep problems in the world from which we need saving. Everyone's looking for salvation. But the vast majority of people are looking for the wrong salvation because either they misdiagnose their problem... Or they misapply the solution. See, people will look for a savior who's big enough to deal with what they perceive their problems to be. So, so, so if, if they see the, the, the problems in this world to be small, they'll look for a small savior. If they see the problems in this world as, as big problems, they'll look for a big savior. People look for a savior big enough to deal with the problems in the world. So, so, for example, if the main problem in the world is, is economic instability, they'll lobby the government to spend more on, on regulating and propping up the economy. Uh, if the main problem they perceive is, is something like international terrorism, they'll, they'll adopt a hawkish attitude when it comes to, to going to war. They'll be more willing to allow their governments to conduct surveillance operations on them. Uh, if the main problem people perceive is something like climate change, they'll, 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 they'll look for a solution in this sort of way, international accords limiting emissions and, and higher standards for factories and, and cars to, to control pollution. Now, now, I'm not bringing up any of these things as, as criticism, just to point out that the things that provide people with salvation need to be big enough to take care of the problem. The, the things that provide people with salvation need to be proportionate to what we need saving from. So again, if you've got a small problem, you need a small savior. If you've got a big problem, you need a big savior. 
And what applies to things like the economy or, or terrorism or the climate also applies to sin. See, if, if we need saving from sin, the solution we need, we need to seek needs to be big enough to deal with the problem of sin. So if the problem that we see sin being, if the problem that sin introduces is just that our lives become, become disordered, or our lives become messed up, then, then properly ordering our lives, getting our whole act together, will be a good enough solution. If the problem that sin introduces is just that God is angry when we sin, then if we stop sinning so much and ask Him for mercy, that should be a good enough solution. If the problem that sin introduces is just friction and, and, and hostility between neighbors, then, then some guidance from wise men or, or prophets or psychologists or sociologists, that'll be enough to, to ease that hostility and provide a, a good enough solution. If the problem, again, is just international strife, war and rumors of war, that, then the introduction of, it, of an international body, an international peacekeeping body, will be good enough, big enough, to, to judge between those international disputes. But, but all of these are actually relatively small solutions to relatively small problems. And if those were the only problems that we faced, then those would really be the only solutions, the only saviors that we'd need. But very few people in the world seem to truly grasp the immensity of their, uh, uh, of their situation, the gravity of their situation. Very few people seem to truly grasp the magnitude of their problem. See, even among those people who believe in some kind of God of human fashioning, some kind of false God, some kind of dead God, the problem is not their God's infinite and eternal wrath against sin. It's always something smaller, something, something more manageable, something that people can muster up for themselves. A small enough problem so that small humans can take care of it. For example, uh, in, in, in Buddhism, the, the, the Buddha taught that the problem in the world was desire and disordered affections. We want the wrong things. Therefore, the way to salvation is to follow the eightfold path that the Buddha lays out to cease from desire and to reorder those affections, to want the right things. Uh, the Vedas, the, the, the Hindu scriptures, they lay out the duties of all people on earth and they maintain that if those duties are properly carried out, according to your class, according to your station, then the karmic cycle will, will reach its conclusion for you and you'll be saved after a fashion. Uh, the Quran teaches that Allah is, is very mad at sin. But if we turn to Allah and if we obey the words of his prophet Muhammad, if we repent and do his will, he will forgive our sins, not because our sins have been paid for, but because we are sorry and he is merciful. The Pharisees of Jesus' day and rabbinical Judaism today, they teach that through careful observance to the Torah's decrees, salvation can be achieved. In all those religions, those religions that are like the, 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 the idols described in Isaiah 44, the, the work of men's hands, in all those religions, both the sin and the salvation need to be within reach for the observer. But in the Bible, God reveals something completely different. He reveals that sin is of a totally different magnitude than we ever would have expected. 
God reveals himself as the creator God of all things, a perfectly holy and a perfectly just God who created humanity in the beginning to, to live in communion with him, to live as his agents in this very good world. But humanity, in the persons of our first parents, Adam and Eve, humanity chose to rebel against this holy and infinite God. And at that point... At that point, the justice of God demanded that one of two things needed to happen. Either those humans who had sinned needed to be struck down right then and there and sent directly to hell to face the just wrath of God for all of eternity, or someone capable of bearing his just and infinite wrath needed to come to bear it for them. God simply cannot forget about sin. As Islam suggests, sin needs to be dealt with. God's just wrath needs to be borne. Someone needs to take that wrath away. Either we do, or someone has to come and do it for us. And praise God, He has provided someone to do that for us. He has provided a substitute, a mediator, someone to stand between us and him, someone to bear the entirety of his wrath against sin, the man Christ Jesus. As we consider this man Jesus this afternoon, this evening, we'll do so under this theme. Jesus' name alone can save us. Jesus' name alone can save us. First, we'll see how he's the only Savior we have. And second, we'll see how he's the only Savior we need. He's the only Savior we have. He's the only Savior we need. Uh, the first question and answer that we, that we have th this evening before us is question and answer 29. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? Quite simply, because He saves us from our sins. He's called Savior because that's what He does. Jesus saves. If you know the Christmas story well, you'll know that this first part of the answer is a paraphrase of what an angel from God told Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, when he found out about Mary's pregnancy. She will bring forth a son, said the angel, and you will call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. See, the name Jesus in English comes, comes from Jesus in the Greek or, or, or Yeshua in the Hebrew. It's a word that means Yahweh or the Lord saves. The Lord saves. So what the angel was telling Joseph was, was you shall call his name the Lord saves because he's going to save his people from their sins. What the angel was making clear was that this son of Mary, this son of God, he was God's promised salvation. He was the mediator, the, the one to stand between God and humanity that had been promised already back at the dawn of time in the Garden of Eden. This was the son of Mary. This was the son of Eve. This was going to be the one to gain God's people the complete victory, deliverance from their enemies, deliverance especially from sin and from Satan. And peace with their God. He is named Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. And as we've already seen, the thing that we need saving from, it's big. It's something that we never could have, could have, could have pulled ourselves out of in a million years. We, we simply do not possess the capacity or the holiness or the power to save ourselves from our sins. And no one in Adam's race could. No one under the fall could. The problem of our sins, it, it's, it's greater than we'll ever be able to fully imagine with our limited minds. 
Because the problem of sin, it's not just that we disobey a set of rules. The problem of sin is that every time we disobey the sovereign ruler and creator of heaven and earth, every time we do that, we are spitting in the face of the just judge. We are rebellious against his just rule. We are traitors to his realm. We are rebels against his rule. We are usurpers. We're trying to steal his throne for ourselves. And there is no more serious crime than rebellion and insurgency and mutiny. And not only only have we made ourselves guilty of rebellion, we also daily make ourselves unholy. This is what the sacrament of baptism teaches us. We are dirty and we need to be made clean. But we can't clean ourselves. We were born with the stain of Adam's sin deeply dyed in our DNA, as it were. And every day we slather ourselves with that same indelible ink, adding to our guilt, making reconciliation with God more and more and more and more difficult with every sin that we heap on. But though our sins were many, his mercy is more. Our sins were more than we could count or even imagine. But the Savior, the Savior, Jesus, the Savior came with endless cleansing power. Other Yeshua's, other, other, other people came before him. Joshua the conqueror, Joshua the high priest. But neither one of those types and shadows, neither one of those previews could provide full deliverance for God's people. Uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that Joshua the conqueror, He did a good job, but as good as he did, he could not provide the people of Israel with the rest, with the peace that they needed. The prophet Zechariah tells us that Joshua, the high priest, he was a holy man, but as holy as he may have seemed in his conduct, he was still dressed in filthy robes, giving giving, giving Satan ample opportunity to accuse him until, until a salvation from outside of himself provided him with the clean robes of spotless righteousness that he so desperately needed. The Old Testament teaches us that only a perfect, spotless Yeshua, only a perfect, spotless Jesus could provide the peace, could provide the holiness so desperately needed by God's rebellious and unholy people. And this is exactly what God provided. Because though we could not understand how big our problem was, God knew. How big our problem was. God knew the scope of the problem of our our sin. God knew how deep the hole was that we had dug for ourselves. And God knew what kind of savior we needed. See, when Jesus died, when Jesus died, he died the death of an accursed rebel. We were rebels. He died the death of a rebel. Though he had never broken God's law in any way, he died as one guilty of the worst possible crimes. See, crucifixion was the worst punishment the ancient world came up with. It it was reserved for the worst of criminals, rebels and slaves. And even in God's law to his people Israel, he made it clear that anyone executed in this way was under God's curse. And so when Jesus died on that cross, he died a death that every rebel should have died. We were rebels. He died the death of a rebel. Though his proper place was at the Father's right hand, he died as a rebel against the Father's throne, bearing God's wrath against sin, against every sin that had ever been committed against his perfect holiness. 
But at the same time, he didn't just die the death of a rebel. When he died, he died the death of a spotless, holy sacrifice. Uh, think of the beginning of the Gospels. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him by the Jordan, and he, and he cried out to all the people around him, Behold, look, look, it's the Lamb of God coming to take away the world's sins. He recognized that a spotless, holy sacrifice was being provided by God to bear God's wrath. Truly, Jesus was nothing less than a salvation given to his people from the very hand of God. And so nobody could bear that name. Nobody could bear that name, the Lord saves, Yahweh saves, more honestly than Jesus the Messiah could. And so when Peter and John come to the temple at three in the afternoon... And they see that man by the gate of the temple holding out his hand, expecting a few coins from them. They are in a position to provide him with a greater salvation than he ever would have imagined when he woke up that morning. They're not in a position to provide salvation as men provide salvation with, with a supplement to his income, silver or gold, have we not? But as those who have been commissioned by Christ, they are in a position to provide a salvation from God. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Peter says, rise up and walk. And when this man groaning under the weight of the fall, when he hears this command given in the name of, of the Savior of all mankind, he allows Peter to pull him up. And Luke tells us, and this is glorious, Luke tells us that immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And so he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Because having heard the name of Jesus, this man's weakened feet and ankle bones have no choice but to respond. The son through whom God created the world, the Son through whom the world's salvation came, the Son who is bringing in His new creation, He heralded, He previewed His new creation, and He declared His victory over the rigors of sin by bringing new creation healing to that man's ankles and feet. Because He knew the saving power of Jesus... Peter provided this man with more salvation than he ever would have dared hope for. And though we also, though we were more lost than we will ever have the courage or the imagination to express, Jesus has provided us with a greater salvation than we ever thought we'd receive. We were more lost than we will ever understand. Jesus has provided us with, with, with a greater salvation than we'll ever comprehend. And beloved, this Jesus' name alone can save us. Salvation is not to be sought in anyone else. The answer goes on, salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. And, and there are two things here. It's not to be sought in, any, in anyone else. It's not to be found in anyone else. First, salvation is not to be sought in anyone else. Because from the very beginning, it was revealed that, that through the seed of the woman, God was going to provide salvation. And so to look for salvation outside of God is to distrust God. Throughout the Old Testament, God made it clear that, that, that he was the one who was going to provide salvation. He was not going to rely on his people to provide salvation. He was going to save his people. And so he, he provided them with, with, with temporary saviors. But every single time he did so, it was God who appointed and, and empowered these, these, these temporary saviors. 
It was God who, who set aside prophets and, and priests and kings and elders and judges to provide His salvation for His people. It was also God who provided the system of, of sacrifice and, and tabernacle and temple by means of which He previewed, He foreshadowed the salvation to be, to be provided in Jesus once and for all at the end of the age. And yet, Though God made it clear, every time, every time He provided a temporary salvation, God, God made it clear that these were just temporary shadows. These were just previews of the great Savior to come. But still, the people of Israel, they, they, they clung to those shadows. They, they, they clung to the sacrifices. They, they, they clung to the temple. They clung to the Old Testament shadows, the Old Testament previews. And they even made and added more shadows and idolatrous shadows to make salvation attainable. And by the time Jesus came on the scene, the religious professionals, the, the, the priests and the, and the scribes, they were so devoted to the shadows, the, the, the types, the pictures, the previews, the things that God had given them to point to salvation, they were so devoted to those things that they missed the actual salvation itself. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he declares himself to be the way to the Father and the Son of God, they fail to recognize him as God's salvation, but instead they treat him like the enemy of God. The priests whose job it was to oversee the sacrifices, they fail to see God's perfect sacrifice, his perfect spotless lamb coming into the world. Those whose job it literally was to check lambs for defects, failed to see the Lamb of God when He came into the world. As Peter said to the Jews in, in Acts chapter 3, you denied the Holy One and the just, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And later on, he said, he said to the priests in our passage, Jesus, He's the stone that was rejected by you builders. But He's become the chief cornerstone. And there isn't salvation anyone else, anywhere else, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. To refuse to recognize God's salvation, God's spotless lamb, is to sin against God. And then having, failed to, uh, having refused to recognize him, to then seek salvation in any other is to sin against God. Salvation is not to be sought in anyone else. And at the same time, Peter says to the priests, nor is there salvation in any other. So first, it's, it's ethically wrong. It's morally wrong. It's a sin against God to look for salvation somewhere else, somewhere other than Jesus. But additionally, it, it's just futile. You can look for it. You won't find it. As the catechism puts it, salvation is not to be sought, so it's ethically wrong, or found, so it's simply impossible in anyone else. And if we understand the scope of our problem, or at least something of the scope of our problem, if we understand the depth of the hole that we have dug for ourselves, if we understand the filth which we, with which we have covered ourselves, we will very quickly come to understand the truth of this statement. After all, if the problem lies in my nature, if the problem lies with who I am, why on earth would I look to what my nature produces for salvation? It's just ridiculous. And Isaiah the prophet takes great pains to point this out in Isaiah 44. He first paints this picture of, of a metal worker. He's, he's hard at work in his forge, putting all his effort into this idle 
this, this, this statue. And by the end of the day, if this man is not eating, if he's not drinking, he's just done. He's wiped. Because mortal men cannot sustain themselves. And if they can't sustain themselves, what business do they have creating gods to, to sustain them? The thing created is always lesser than the one doing the creating. What Isaiah is picturing is just, is just illogical. It, it's foolish. It, it's stupid even to think that what you have made has made you and can sustain you. He then paints this picture of the woodworker. This man, he goes into a forest surrounded by the might and the grandeur that God the Lord has created. And this man picks a tree in his, in his great wisdom. He picks a tree, he cuts it down, he splits it in half. The first half keeps him warm and, and cooks his bread. By the grace of God who created him, this man is nourished and warmed. And then the second half gets a special treatment. He makes that half into a god. Wow. He makes it into a god and asks that block of wood to deliver him. Imagine the arrogance. Imagine the arrogance of all the illogical things to do. Surely the crowning folly of them all has to be the invention of false gods or, or the invention of new ways to get to the true God. Salvation simply cannot be found anywhere other than Jesus, the one who has been sent by the Father to be the salvation of the fallen world. And the image that we get in Acts 3 and 4 of a lame man, it's a good analogy here. A man who is lame can't walk himself to the emergency room. So also a, a fallen humanity, like, like completely fallen, like, like dead on the ground, a fallen humanity cannot hope to restore itself. Not by its own ingenuity, not by anything that it produces or makes, no matter how much power or might is ascribed to the things that humanity shapes. Jesus, beloved, Jesus is the only Savior we have. And praise God, He's the only Savior we need. He's not only the only Savior, He's also a complete Savior. We need nothing in addition to Him. Jesus is the only Savior we need. See, there are loads of people throughout this world, but a third of the world's population claim to hold Jesus as their Savior. But question and answer 30 really asks an important follow-up question. Do they really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? Or do they believe in Jesus plus the good works of the saints? Or Jesus plus the added revelation given to Joseph Smith? Or Jesus plus their ancestors, or, or Jesus plus certain rites and rituals, or Jesus plus the gift of speaking in tongues. Now to all these, I heard you say it, and I think you would say it again, to all of these we would with confidence say no. If you're believing in any of those things in addition to Jesus, you're not putting all your faith in Jesus. You have a second Savior. But all these examples are pretty clear cut. Right? Mormons, uh, Roman Catholics, practitioners of, uh, of syncretistic voodoo-type religions, they're clearly not putting all their confidence in Jesus. But there's a pretty good chance that I'm not talking to Mormons or Catholics or, or practitioners of voodoo this afternoon, this evening. I'm talking to Protestants. I'm talking to Reformed Protestants at that, but, but we should not see ourselves as immune 
the temptations that have been besetting God's people throughout the history of the Old and New Covenants. After all, even in the Corinthian church, one of the churches that Paul planted, a church where Paul spent months of his time, even years of his time, Christians took pride in the teachers through whom they had come to faith and the preachers that had baptized them. Do we do this? Do we do this? Maybe not this exactly, but, but do we depend not only on Jesus, but also on our, our, our association with a particularly orthodox federation or denomination or, or local church? Are we guilty of placing undue confidence in preachers and churches or traditions when our only confidence should be the Jesus who saved us and gave us those preachers and churches? Unless we think only of the Corinthian church, what about about the Galatian church? Are are we like them? Are are, are we putting undue confidence in certain proofs or, or fruits of our commitment to Christ. They, they place a great deal of confidence in, in the rite of circumcision. I'm sure most of us don't do that, but, but do, we, do we place a great deal of confidence in our ability to recite confessions and creeds and explain complex doctrines? Have we forsaken confidence in who we know for confidence in what we know? See, church membership and and sitting under the preaching of the word and baptism and and orthodox doctrine and growth in knowledge and holiness, they're all necessary and good and and holy and and, and they're gifts from God. Never let it be said that they are not. But not one of those things will save us. Not one of those things will come alongside Jesus as a good confidence. Whole churches... Even churches that call themselves reformed, whole churches have been carried away by this kind of false and idolatrous confidence, demanding that in addition to faith in Christ, you need a conversion story. In addition to faith in Christ, you need some kind of of special secondary experience of God's grace before you can be granted privilege, uh, privilege uh, the privileges of church membership. I, I know of a person, and I'm sure many of you do as well, I know of a person who never once participated in Lord's Supper and who died without experiencing and expressing confidence in her eternal destiny because she had been taught in a Reformed church, she had been taught that she also needed a conversion story, some special secondary experience of God's grace. It's monstrous. We dare not, we must not. If we place those kinds of barriers before ourselves or before other people who profess faith in Christ, we are denying the perfect salvation that Jesus provides. We must not place such barriers in front of God's people. And if that kind of barrier has been erected for you, if you have been told that you need something else besides Jesus to be saved, know this. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, and we know that's not true, or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in Him all they need for salvation. Beloved, He is a perfect Savior. Again, God knew how 
deep the hole was. God knew how big the problem was, and He sent the perfect Savior to meet all our needs. He is a perfect Savior. And if in true faith you accept this Savior, Jesus, you have in Him everything you need for your salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, our sins were more than we could count, but your mercy was greater still. We, we thank you and praise you for the salvation that you provide for us in Jesus. Father, we were helpless and you sent us a helper. We were poor and you sent us your gift of inestimable wealth. We were sinners and you sent us a sacrifice to make us holy. We were rebels and you sent your son, your anointed one, to bear our rebellion and die in our place. Our Father, we praise you. And yet, Father, though, though you have provided us all we need for our salvation in Christ, yet whether through stubbornness or folly or just sinful pride, we, we erect other saviors in our own image. Father, forgive us for this. And let us know that these saviors that we seek cannot save, only Jesus can. Father, open our eyes to our idolatry and turn us to you. Father, we, we thank you that we can come together as, as a full congregation this Sunday. Work in our hearts an earnest desire to continue coming together. Please continue being with those in communities and provinces in other areas of this country where worship continues to be restricted or where churches have decided not to reopen. Father, Give our brothers and sisters in those other areas and churches patience and a continued zeal for you despite their circumstances. Father, also be with our brothers and sisters who are kept by age or frailty or illness from gathering with us. Comfort them by your Holy Spirit with the comfort that comes from knowing that we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to us. Father, may your son's kingdom be built. May his people be comforted and equipped May his servants go forth. May his name be glorified above all other names in heaven, on earth, throughout the ages. In Jesus' name we come and plead. Amen.